<clears throat> if you uh, hear me clearing my throat, it's not because I'm sick. It's because the second week of my holidays, I've uh, spent my whole time in the downstairs bathroom renovating, and I have drywall dust coming up out of my lungs this morning. I did wear a mask when I was sanding, but it still, uh, still got there. Um, I want to begin with, with some thoughts on some of the earliest Christian art, the, er, some of the earliest Christian-themed art that ar- archaeologists have uncovered, uh, is in the form of mosaics, uh, common in those days to produce art in that way. And the, interestingly enough, uh, some of the most common themes in Christian art, uh, the earliest art was in homes because they didn't have church buildings, is that of Jesus as a shepherd. But the, the mosaic art form is, is very, um, it's very interesting in that it's scalable. It's, it's, uh, you can have pictures like this that are clearly uh, well articulated, but then you can also have ones like this, which is thought to be an early Christian symbol. Uh, well, we know the fish was an early Christian symbol, and, and we have uh, findings of, for example, maybe on a gatepost or a door, uh, probably a code single signal to other Christians that would know what it means that Christians live here, whereas the, the authorities probably didn't know what it means. Uh, but this particular uh, type of mosaic um, is made from just broken pieces of pottery. So even the poorest of poor people could pick up broken pieces of pottery in different colors and use some, some mud or something to put it up on their walls and, and decorate in that way. And then, uh, you know, a bit later uh, in the history, you have huge uh, domes in the churches with mosaics such as this one here, where the individual pieces of colored clay are obviously um, individually produced for the artwork. Um, The reason I bring up mosaic today is because I want to begin to create, or actually, to be more accurate, I began long ago when I started preaching through the Old Testament to produce a mosaic of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of all of this. Now, we will not be able to place all the pieces that make up the rich and beautiful picture of our Savior and Messiah on Sunday mornings. And so my my idea, my goal, is to give you that outline of the picture place some of the pieces, and then that gives you the skill then to read your Bible, find more pieces, and know where they go to create a rich and full picture of Jesus Christ for for your own relationship with him. So in this connection between Old and New Testament, I'm going to, uh, over the next Sundays, give three messages on fulfilled. Jesus fulfills the law, Jesus fulfills the prophets, and Jesus fulfills the writings. And so today we begin with the first one. Uh, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. And the one thing I want to focus on here is that Jesus is our faithful high priest. Hebrews chapter 2 <clears throat> excuse me, describes it this way. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. Now, 
The Old Testament law is a rich and detailed piece of writing, piece of God's word. And I could not possibly find all the mosaic pieces out of there that make up our picture of Jesus. So I've decided to focus on just one day in the law, the Day of Atonement. And I think that's appropriate because even even as you look at the uh, pre-law period, Abraham, uh, Noah, even the, the first three chapters of Genesis, coming through the Exodus, and all the details of the moral law, uh, the, the ceremonial laws, and the clean and unclean laws, and all of those different things, they kind of come together and have their focus or their point on the Day of Atonement. It's like you can make the argument that all of those things in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the pointy edge of that spear is the Day of Atonement. They all, they all exist to support and, uh, and, and hold up or, or somehow are connected to that day. That's an oversimplification, of course, but when we take one Sunday to go through all of that, we have to... Uh, summarize and simplify a little bit. But I want to just begin then by talking about atonement itself, the word. So the word is actually a very versatile word in the Old Testament Hebrew. And uh, just to give you a couple of examples, uh, when Noah put bitumen or tar on the ark, the word used is atonement. He atoned the ark with tar. Now, that simply means he covered it. That is a meaning of the word. To cover something is to atone it. Uh, But you can also see the spiritual significance of that. When all the chaos of the world and all the chaos of God's judgment was put upon the earth, the people of God's choosing were protected from it by the tar on the ark, by the atonement. So that's a... That's the kind of thing that goes through. Another way in which this word is used, uh, we might not think of this as a very spiritual word, but it can be translated as a bribe. Now, give you context and you'll understand what that means. When uh, Jacob did wrong to his brother and stole his birthright two times, his brother vowed to kill him. He thought that was just judgment, and Jacob ran away to another land, and many years later he returned to the land of God's promise. And it says that he tried to atone for his past wrongdoing by sending many rich gifts ahead to his brother. That's a bribe, right? But it's an atonement. He atoned for his past sin by giving his brother these gifts. And the interesting thing about that, it doesn't say that Esau forgot about the wrongdoing. It says that Esau covered his eyes. In other words... He knew very well what Jacob had done, but he chose not to see it anymore because jo- Jacob had made atonement. So that's, that's just a couple of examples. The word is used in, in many different ways, but that gives you an idea. It's to make amends. Uh, another way in which it's used is to purify or to clean, but we don't think of that, in, or, or to think of it properly isn't to think of how we think of cleaning, especially in today's, uh, this past year, when we wear masks and use hand sanitizers all the time, we're, we're so worried about germs and, we, and viruses, and we clean and clean and clean, but that's not what it means here in the Old Testament. I mean, that's a, that's a fine thing to do, but the, the idea here is more to make suitable. Something is purified or cleaned to make it suitable for a use. So let's just... Think of an unlikely situation. Your, uh, your cupboards all fall off the wall and all of your glasses break. But you want to drink a water. 
Well, you could go in your bathroom and take the little cup that has everyone's toothbrushes in it. But you might want to clean it first to make it suitable for the new use of having a drink of water. So that would be atoning it, making it, taking it from one purpose and making it suitable for another purpose. And so that's another way in which this word is used. We sum all of that up in the word forgive. And so uh, let's just look at this. Now, I think it's appropriate, because this is our focus this morning, to read the whole of Leviticus chapter 16, the description of the Day of Atonement. So I'm going to do that. Leviticus 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with the linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. He is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron then will bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for the sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used to make atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall take the bull for his own sin offering, make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take the censer filled of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragment incense. And take them before behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony, so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood, and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. And then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offerings of the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And in this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself and his household and for the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He is to sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. 
Then when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garment he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and offal are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This is a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, there's so much that we could bring forward, but I have a few points that I think catch the essence. The first thing we notice as we read this account of the Day of Atonement is that no one enters God's presence lightly. It's not something you just do. As, as we heard at the very beginning, two of Aaron's sons had died from entering God's presence uh, in an improper manner. And so there's a lot that goes into this, coming into God's presence. And uh, just to kind of <clears throat> summarize what we just read, I'm using the word, probably incorrectly, but the word credentials. How do you get the right credentials to be in that place? Well, for the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement was the only time that anyone ever went into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, the place of God's presence. And he had to bring a bull, the most expensive sacrifice for his own sins. And he had to bring a ram for the sins of the people. And there was washings and there was special clothes and there was sprinklings. And there was all of these different things that he had to do in order to be ready and worthy to, uh, to enter that place. And uh, all of these things were done. Jesus' credentials are given to us in Hebrews chapter 7. I don't think I have a slide for that. No. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. 
He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. So what, I'm, what, we, what we see happening here is, is very interesting. All of these things were required to enter God's presence. The law has many more details than just in chapter 16, but that's kind of the, the day of atonement, the focal point. And it says here in Hebrews that Jesus fulfilled those requirements. And I think what that means is not that the requirements changed. The requirements to enter God's presence didn't change. What did change? We got a new high priest. We got a high priest who did not have to offer sacrifices and go through rituals to cover his own sins. Because as the Son of God, he had no sin to atone for. And the sacrifice that he offered was not the sacrifice of a goat or a lamb, but of his own blood. And so, because he does not die and a new priest has to be uh, put in place, he goes not into the symbolic holy place made by the hands of humans, but he goes into the holiest of holy place, the actual tabernacle of God, not where there's gold uh, cherubim uh, standing over the seat of righteousness, but the actual living cherubim over the throne of God. And that is the throne that Jesus goes into as our high priest and sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice and makes atonement and covers over for our sins. And so the requirements haven't changed. They've just been fulfilled in the high priest that we now have. He has the credentials to do this. He does not have to do it over and over again because he doesn't sin again and have to do it again. It's eternally valuable. The next thing that happens, uh, the first thing was the priest, and this is actually the bulk of the chapter in 16, is the high priest making himself capable of going into the presence of God. Uh, Jesus doesn't have to do all of that because he is, he is sinless. He is without sin. He doesn't have to sacrifice for his own sins. But the next thing that the high priest did is the incense. He, he takes some coals from the altar and some incense and he kind of sneaks it under the curtain into the holy place and puts the incense on so there's smoke in the room. So that when he goes in there, though God's presence is there and he can see it, it's obscured by the smoke. And therefore he will not die. And uh, Jesus didn't have to do this because he can look directly at God, his Father, because he is the true Son, uh, person, the, the, the second person of the Trini, Trinity, but then, as Hebrews just told us, also a man and our high priest. So when Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, we're talking Easter here, not Christmas, but when he goes in with his own blood as our high priest to make atonement, the stuff behind the curtain is not obscured, but we read in the Gospels that the curtain is torn from top to bottom and it is opened up. 
It's not concealed, it's revealed. Because he is our perfect and faithful high priest who goes in with a proper atonement that is good for all time and opens the way to God. The next thing that happens on the Day of Atonement is the goat of the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And here we have Jesus again fulfilling these requirements in two ways. He is the sacrifice. It is his blood that is sprinkled in the presence of God. But he is also the priest who brings the sacrifice or brings the the atonement. And and so that's why you have this odd image in Revelation when the the <clears throat> excuse me the the lion of David is called forth in the holy presence in the temple of God. The lion of David, Jesus Christ, comes forth and appears as a lamb that was slain. He is both the priest and the sacrifice, and he is making atonement for all eternity. Even when we meet him in heaven, he is there making atonement. And that atonement is effective. Well, before I go to the second goat, let me just sidetrack for a minute. There's a lot of talk here of blood, isn't there? It's kind of gory. It doesn't sit well with us in our Western sensibilities. I was tempted to make this sermon about blood. But I'm not going to. I'm making it about the Day of Atonement. But I'm going to give you some homework. Go in your Bible software or on the internet on a Bible Hub or something like that. And if you don't know where to go, just ask me. I can send you to some free stuff that you can, you can get. And do a search for the word blood in the Old Testament. And just start reading verse after verse after verse where it talks about blood. Uh, maybe a few verses around for context. It'll take you an hour or two. Hour or two. And you will begin to get a picture of what these people thought about blood, which is very, very different than what we think about blood. We think about blood in relationship disease and contamination, if it's not inside of a body. If it's outside of a body, we think about it in that way. They thought about it very, very differently. They thought about blood. I'll just give you the hint, like I said, kind of the outline, and then you can take the pieces of the mosaic and fill it in on your own. They thought about blood as the most sacred of physical substances. The life blood. You hear that over and over and over again in the Old Testament. The life is in the blood. The life blood. It was the most sacred of substances. So when they're talking about clean and atonement and sprinkling blood, they're not talking about what we think about sanitization. They're thinking about making the object fit for another purpose with a sacred substance that takes it from being a common everyday object that could be used in your kitchen and turning it into something that can be used in the worship of God, in the presence of God. They're making it holy. And so do that reading if you're curious about that. It'll change your mind about what when you read this about blood and when you come to the communion service and we say, drink this blood, this wine is my blood. It will have a deeper and richer meaning if you do that in your Old Testament. They thought about it differently than we do. And we need to get that mindset if we want to understand and participate in these things. So that's the sacrificial goat. Then the next one is the scapegoat. And here again, Jesus fulfills this. 
We read again and again in the New Testament that our, Jesus took upon himself our sins. He didn't go into the wilderness. He went into the place of death. The early Christian creeds say that he descended into Hades. Why did he do that? Why is that so important that it's mentioned in the Apostle Creed, the Nicene Creed, the things that we repeat as our core beliefs? Because the wilderness was a symbol of the part of the world that was not yet under God's control. See, the picture in Genesis is that the, that the earth is, is, is void of order. And God puts it into order to make it suitable for human habitation and for relationship with him. And, uh, and uh, our, our friend Michael has taught us about how the, the Genesis account pictures the Garden of Eden as a temple garden. And then we look at Revelation and the whole new heaven and earth is a temple. It still has all the wondrous variation and variety of species and, and area and, and all of that. But it's, it's set up as an orderly place, a temple, a place to encounter God. But these sins are taken out into the desolate place. The place with no order. The place that is still formless and void. And they're left there. And Jesus took our sins and he took them into the place of death and punishment, Hades, and they did not return, just as that goat did not return. They're gone. He is our scapegoat. And this is the part that was new to me this time. I've read the Day of Atonement many times, but this is the part that I noticed that I hadn't noticed before. It's very specific, isn't it? After the priest, high priest had done all of these things. Now picture this. The people have to stay outside the tent. If you remember the tabernacle in the wilderness, there's an there's a, there's a outside barrier, a fence, as it were, and then there's the, the inner court that holds the altar and the wash basin, and then there's the tabernacle itself, which has the holy place with the candles and the incense and the bread and all of that, and then there's the holiest of places, which houses the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God, a place where the high priest only goes once a year. Well, on the Day of Atonement, all the people are outside the fence. And the high priest goes in by himself, purifies himself, and then purifies all the objects, and then purifies the place. And then he brings the sins of the people on the goat, and he sends that out. All of that happens, and the people are fasting, and they're not working, and they're standing outside. And it's as if the, the, the people are in the priest. As he does this. And the New Testament speaks again and again as of us living in Christ, our high priest. So the people are kind of in him. They're, they're participating with him, though they're not in the tabernacle as he does these things. In fact, tradition tells us that the high priest would, they would sew bells around the bottom of his garment. Because if he did something wrong, he would die. And they would know if the bell stopped ringing that he wasn't doing the things anymore. And they would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he died, they could pull his body out and they could appoint a new high priest and he'd go in. Kind of a scary job, isn't it? We have no record if that actually ever happened, but that's what ancient tradition tells us, how they did it. It's taken seriously. But the people are in the priest. He's in their stead. He's in their place doing these things. And then when he's done, he takes off the clothes that he's done all these things in. And he leaves them in there and he washes his body. Then he puts on clean clothes and comes out to the people and says, atonement has been made. You may come in. What are the disciples very precise about mentioning 
about the grave of Jesus Christ. He left the clothes in there. He didn't come out with those clothes. He was clean, and when he appeared to Mary, he had on clothes fit for heaven. And they all mention that. And I've always wondered, why are the clothes so important? It's because he's our high priest, and the high priest leaves the clothes that he wore when he made atonement inside. He doesn't take them out. So this is just another thing, another thing that in which Jesus fulfills these Old Testament things. He is our faithful and perfect high priest. What does this mean? What are we to do? How shall we live? Because these things are true. I want to give you two things. The first one is this. Live free of guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now think about that for a minute in terms of the Day of Atonement. There's a lot of it that had to do with the sins of the year. But there's something else going on here. The the picture that's being presented to us is this one. The priests throughout the year are coming in and out of the temple and making their sacrifices and doing the rituals. But they're they're, they're sometimes uh, in there without having confessed their sins or having done wrong. They didn't know they did. They can't remember. And the people are coming in and out. And it's like as if, in a spiritual sense, all of the instruments and elements within the temple are being contaminated. So on the Day of Atonement, everyone stays out and the high priest goes in and he makes atonement for the sins. He makes the temple fit for the service in the coming year. He purifies it again. It has to be done again because the people doing the things in the temple are not pure. It's a little bit like your, your phone. You know, it starts getting slow and it doesn't work properly and it doesn't do what you want. So what do you do? You do a reset. Sometimes you have to do a hard reset. And then it, it just takes away all the errors and gets rid of them and makes it fit for use again. That's kind of what we're seeing here in the Day of Atonement. The the temple is being made fit for use for the coming year. And that's what Jesus does. He stands before the throne of God in heaven with the blood of his own sacrifice. And he makes it fit for our use, not just by forgiving our sins from the past, but also by making it fit for our use in the future. He doesn't do it again and again every year, just once. So we can enter the holy place of God freely. We can live free of condemnation. Not free of sin until our own resurrection, but free of condemnation. It's like Esau covers his eyes and says, I'm not going to live as though those things were done in the past. And I'm going to live with you now in the future in the land of God's promise, as though that past was not there. And it's like Noah in the ark, where the atonement of the wood with the tar protects him from God's judgment. This doesn't mean he's not a sinful person in the ark, but he's chosen and atoned for and protected. It's like Jonah in the belly of the fish. Yeah, he said, I deserve to be thrown out into the storm into Hades, into the place where the scapegoat goes. But then God provides a fish 
to carry him through, to hold him and prepare him for what would come after. You see the mosaic? The pieces are there all through the Old Testament. And as you learn to recognize them, your picture of Jesus becomes fuller and richer and more beautiful and captures more of your attention every day, every year. So live free. The second thing is if we are disciples of Jesus Christ and he is a high priest, then what are we? Then we too are priests. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says, He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. We serve under our high priest as a kingdom of priests. I don't know if you ever thought about yourself as a priest. But what do priests do? There's a number of things. I'm just going to mention four. But one thing that priests do is they have direct access to God. They're the ones that go into the holy place. And so as a kingdom of priests, we too have access to God. We serve in God's presence. Hebrews chapter 4 puts it this way. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We serve in God's presence. We live in his presence. We have access to God as priests under our high priest. Priests offer sacrifices. That's another thing they do. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 puts it this way. And you are living stones that God has built, is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. This is a different kind of sacrifice than maybe we sometimes think about. Sometimes we think about a sacrifice as a way of gaining access, as a way of of somehow getting in there into God's presence, paying the debt, as it were. But that's not what priests do. Priests offer sacrifices just in their normal, natural duty and calling. We could go on about spiritual sacrifices, which you can explore in your New Testament and take those mosaic pieces and add them to your picture of Jesus Christ and your relationship to him. But the language is all over the place as you learn to understand it more deeply. Another thing that priests do is they declare truth. How many times in your Old Testament reading have you read the kind of thing where where the priest stands before the people and reads the law? But it's not only that. The priests served much of their time not in the tabernacle itself or in the temple, but they served out in the community. They didn't own property, so they lived in all the different communities. And uh, the people were to support them through their tithes, so they didn't have to work. But what did they do out there in the communities? Well, they were the ones who declared the truth of God. They were the ones that reminded the people of the requirements. They were the ones that brought the people to the tabernacle for the Day of Atonement so their sins could be covered over. They were the ones who did all of these things. We read about this kind of ministry for Christians in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently recreate correct, rebuke, and encourage your, your people with good teaching. This is the role of every Christian. This is the role of every priest, to be a representative and a declarer of God's truth. 
But perhaps most importantly is we make reconciliation. We are agents of reconciliation as priests serving under our high priest. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them, he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. That's the work of priests. Priests reconcile the people to God. And Jesus has fulfilled the role and the requirements of the high priest. And he has called us to be his priests serving under him. I wonder what would happen if we would devote ourselves, our time, our energy, our thoughts, to being priests under our high priest. To living in God's presence, to spiritual sacrifices, to declaring the truth, and to the ministry of reconciliation. What would we spend our time? What would be the outcome? I believe that we would become unstuck. It's the word that came to my mind this morning as I was reviewing this message. Unstuck. We would become unstuck from our devotion to the material things of this world. And we would become devoted to storing up treasures in heaven. We would become unstuck from our fears because as priests serving under the high priest who is in heaven before God, there's nothing this earth can do to us that we should be afraid of. We would become unstuck. We would become unstuck from our relationship troubles because our ministry is reconciliation. And we would devote all our time to getting our relationships right again. No cost too great. The cost to Jesus Christ of getting the relationship between us and God right again was his life. No cost too great if you're a minister of reconciliation. We would come unstuck from our addictions because the pleasure of serving in God's presence would soon outshadow the momentary pleasures we get from the things we're addicted to. We would become unstuck from our politics because we would see that nothing that can be done on this earth through politics has any value compared to the ministry of reconciliation in the presence of God as our high priest. We would so desire that outcome. We would so desire being in the temple with our Savior, with our high priest. We we would so desire the bringing of other people to the truth that we would lose all hope in anything else to bring us any good. 
and we would devote ourselves fully and completely to our faithful high priest. Jesus fulfills the law. He doesn't abolish it. It's still there, but its requirements have been met because we have a new and greater high priest. And he has called us to serve in his tabernacle, the other outer courts, which is this earth, as his priests and his ministers. I'll close with this. The talk about the mosaic it has new meaning to me after going through this. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What is he saying? At least in part, he's saying, just like the high priest was anointed year after year and chosen for that task, he's saying, Jesus, you are the anointed one. You are my high priest. There's other things we're going to get to in the next couple of Sundays, but he was saying that. What does Jesus say? He he says, Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And this bit about the keys has been a mystery to me, and it's a mystery to, to many. It's a bit great controversy what it means. But as I see Jesus as my high priest, I can see this conversation as Jesus inaugurating Peter as a priest under him. What do priests do? They stand between God and the people. They have the keys that let people come into God's presence. And I think at least in part that's what Jesus is doing here when Peter says, you are the anointed one. You are my high priest. Jesus says, okay, then let me inaugurate you as an underpriest. You serve with me in this place. I give you the keys. And he gives you the keys. If he, if he is your high priest. As his disciple, you are a priest under him. You have access to God in, in complete freedom. You can offer spiritual sacrifices that are effective. You can uphold the truth, and you are agents or ministers of reconciliation. Oh, that we would live this way.